Good morning. Uh, my pleasure to be here today to uh, chair this panel of ABLE scholars to talk about issues that we all care about deeply. Uh, our first presenter will be Maureen O'Hara, and she's the Robert Purcell Professor of Finance at the Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell. She also holds a professorship in Sydney. Her research focuses on issues of market microstructure, and she's the author of numerous articles as well as the book Market Microstructure Theory. I'll introduce all three at the beginning and then we'll carry on from there. Father Peter Schallenberg is Professor of Moral Theology and Ethics at the Faculty of Theology in Paderborn and Director of the Catholic Social Science Center in Mönchengladbach. His research focuses on Christian social ethics, social market economy ethics, and Christian social theory. He's published numerous scholarly articles and books, including God, the Good, and the Human, Fundamentals of Catholic Moral Theology. Martin Kramers is professor of finance and currently the interim dean of the business school at Notre Dame, but we just heard this week that he will be the dean starting July 1st. His research focuses on empirical issues in investments and corporate finance. He's published many scholarly articles, including one about to appear, or maybe it already has, Martin, I'm not sure, that might interest you. We speak a lot in this conference about the common good, but this might appeal to your own narrow self-interest. The title of the article is, How Active Is Your Fund Manager? A New Measure That Predicts Performance. <laughs> So, Maureen, may I ask you to begin? Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's certainly a delight to be here, and I, I do want to thank Thomas and Michael and, and all the people who organized what I have found so far to be a really um, delightful conference. So thank you for including me. Um, we don't have a clicker, so we're going to do this the old-fashioned way. Thank you. Um, we're supposed to be, in this session, reconsidering the values of finance. And I think that makes a lot of sense when you think about the various things we've, we've been asked to do. And for example, Pope Benedict, financiers must rediscover the genuinely ethical foundations of their activity so as not to abuse the sophisticated instruments which can serve to betray the interests of savers. I think that's a nice quote. It's one that, that I find very useful to contemplate because I do think we have to rediscover the ethical foundations of what we do. But if you're going to reshape the values in finance, I think you first have to understand why is finance the way it is. And, and that's tricky. Um, it, it is it, as some people claim. For example, Richard Posner here at University of Chicago is, is in this camp that the wrong sort of people go into finance, that people only interested in money, people only interested in, in the narrow world of what, whether they can take advantage of others because they know more. If those are the sorts of people who go into finance, then it's going to be pretty tough. But I, I don't think that's it. But then again, what else is there to blame? There's no question that finance has not fared well in the public opinion of how well we do with respect to ethical behavior. There are all kinds of polls and things that show that, you know, were it not for Congress, we'd probably be down right at the bottom. Um, so, 
It's an interesting challenge, right? As someone who teaches MBAs and, and PhDs, as someone who works in, in the industry on boards and things, it, nobody wants to be part of a profession in any way, shape, or form that's viewed as fleecing people. Um, so um, I think it's important, and I think we have to, to reshape the values. Now, as someone who's also taught for a long time, the 9 o'clock class they're usually showing up, but they're, they're not really all that awake yet. Uh, and so as the lead-off speaker, I thought I would take a slightly different approach here to try and think about the question I posed, which is, if it's not, the, you know, if it's not this, then what is it? So what I want to do is actually, I want to show you two experiments. All right? so, Economics and finance have, have begun to draw on broader disciplines than, than we have in the past. Experimental economics is big. Behavioral economics and behavioral finance is big. And I'm actually going to talk to you today a little bit about behavioral ethics. Um, so I want to show you two experiments that people ran to try and sort of get at some features that may help us understand, you know, what are the values and, and where do we have to go with this? So this cute little fellow, um, as you would guess, is a mouse. And the experiment I'm going to talk about was run in Europe by a, a group of um, experimental economists. And the point of this experiment is to understand how do people behave differently when they're in markets. So if you think about one of the things that characterizes modern finance, it isn't the you know, handshake and lend you the, the, the money and you promise to pay it back. It isn't the, we're, we're, we're doing this one-on-one. -on -one. Virtually everything we do is in markets. Markets are impersonal, right? The, the, the problem with markets, or maybe the, the benefit of markets, is that because they're not generally, you know, so geographically constrained, they allow finance to spread and do wonderful things. But they are markets. So I want to show you this experiment, so we'll go one more. And um, here's the experiment. The uh, experimenters had a large group of people, and they repeated this over and over again. Um, and the ex so we'll think about this room, and the participants are going to end up having two choices. So suppose that everyone in this room were offered treatment, in, in the first treatment, they're offered the following choice. You can get 10 euros, but a mouse is going to get killed. Now, where's the mice coming from? These mice are laboratory mice, right? <laughs> Universities tend to have a few of these around. And these little guys uh, have, have done their duty. They've been in their experiment, and now they're excess mice. So this little experiment is that you can each get your 10 euros, uh, but the mouse is killed. or you can forgo the 10 euros and the mouse will be spared to spend the rest of his natural life on that little wheel keeping in shape. Um, so that's treatment one. It's an individual treatment, okay? Then there's going to be a second experiment where we would divide the subjects in half. So let's say from Thomas on over would be one side and everyone would be the other. And now, instead of individuals making a decision each individually, we're going to assign property rights to the mouse to each, everyone in this group. And you're going to negotiate with everyone in that group. So in the market setting, the participants are assigned to be buyers and sellers. And 
they're going to bargain. So now, say, Mary and, and Christopher here would be bargaining. And what they're bargaining is if they get to split, if they can agree on how to split 20 euros between each of them, uh, they get the money, but the mouse is killed. Or they can agree, you know, they're not going to take any money and the mouse is spared. Okay, so let's think about the first setting as the individual setting and the second setting as the, as the market. Um, so we'll go to the answers here. So here's, here's what they found. All right. So in the first treatment, more people than not chose to spare the mouse. All right. But still 45% of them said a mouse is a mouse. Right. Try the next one. Here we go. But look what happens when we put these same people in markets. That poor guy, the mouse is killed 72% of the time. And not only that, you had to pay individuals 47.5 euros to get 72% of them to kill the mouse. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. That's a mouse, right? You know, but I think the point of this experiment, and this was run many, many times, is that somehow decision-making in markets looks very different than decision-making done by individuals. And what we do in finance is in markets, right? So one of the interesting questions, Martin, we'll move on to the next one, is what makes financial decision-making prone to overlook ethical dimensions, right? And this is where I want to draw on the, the field of behavioral ethics. Right? It could be that people are innately terrible. Some people are. But I also think that some people, uh, maybe all people, are subject to a variety of behavioral psychological biases. Right? One of them is the role of markets. Impersonality prevails. Right? Why do engineers build cars you know, that they know may have safety defects, right? Because the statistical victims don't seem to have the same, you know, salience as actual victims. Sort of the same problem we know in markets. The impersonality takes away the notion that there is actually someone on the other side of a transaction. So as we look at the behavioral ethics, we see a variety of things that helps us maybe understand why finance may be prone to missing out on some of these ethical dimensions. A lot of what we do in finance is now more and more technical and involves not just one person, not one banker saying, here, take this. But you, know, you may have the quant who structures the financial product is not the trader who interacts with the client. There may be a variety of people involved. Now, in economics, the notion of delegated behavior or agency problems is certainly fundamental to a lot of what we look at. And we know it leads to a lot of, again, behavioral things that show up in behavioral ethics. For example, in here, you can end up with indirect blindness. That is, who's responsible for making sure this product what we're making actually is ethical and not sort of taking advantage of people? Is it the person who who sort of set this whole deal up? Is it the person who he said, here, create something that looks like this? Is it everybody? Or is it, in fact, nobody, right? And do people see what they want to see? Do they see that, hey, you know, I don't know what these people are going to do with it. This is just a product. We know from behavioral ethics that these sorts of problems arise all the time. 
The other challenge I think we have in finance are the complexity of products in corporate form. I can assure you that as confusing as some of these products are when you read about them, in reality they're often a lot more complicated because journalists really didn't know enough to actually write about what these things actually are. So as a finance professor, there are times I'm absolutely puzzled by some of the things that you see out there. Um, that complexity makes it hard for anybody to figure things out, but so does the complexity of corporate form. I thought it might be fun just to look these numbers up. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase has 5,688 subsidiaries. Morgan Stanley has 9,713. Some of those are tax subsidiaries that are set up so they don't really count. But financial institutions are stunningly complex organizations. And the ability to try and, and create the right ethical behavior in that is certainly challenging. So I don't want to be an apologist for finance. Instead, I want us to think about what are some of the things that may account for this behavior so that when we think about how we're going to change it, we have some things to contemplate. So, I want to go to a second experiment. This one is more troubling. Right? The first one, you know, the mouse, he's awfully cute, but still. Um, this one is more troubling, and this was also done in Europe. Uh, they recruited bankers from a large international bank, and um, again, they did a variety of repetitions of this, so we're not talking, you know, 20 people. We're talking, they do it in several hundreds. They recruited bankers, and again, they randomly assigned them into two groups. In this experiment, they take the two groups, say this side and that side, you're in different rooms, and what they do is with one group, remember you're all bankers, with one group they say to them, uh, if we were going to do it here, you know, have you filled out your NCAA poll, who'd you pick, you know, did you go with all the Catholic schools? I've done that the last few years. It's worked really well. Um, yeah, go Villanova, although I picked Gonzaga this year. Um, but, you know, you talk about, you know, do you have kids, that sort of stuff. This group, you're in another room, talk about what is your current position? What other positions did you have at the bank? What other banks have you worked for? So you remind them of their professional duties, whereas these people are not. Right? They're all bankers. Okay, Martin? Um, so now what? Now all of you are going to flip coins. You're off in, in separate little cubicles. You're flipping these coins. And uh, you're going to flip a coin 10 times. And, and then actually they have these little laptops. And you report uh, the numbers of heads and tails. And you are told before you start flipping, um, depending on the trial, a head or a tail could be worth $20 each, and you're told which one is going to be worth the $20, all right? So you're told, um, in, this, in this round, you know, depending on how many heads you flip, you'll get $20 a head. And then you report how many heads you get, okay? Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? You're just flipping coins. You're going to report how many heads you get. You get paid $20 for each head. Here's the result. When you remind me I'm a banker, I lie more often. So this is the distribution, and basically what you can see, the control group is in red, and uh, the, uh, or the, the, uh, the banker group is on the right side. 
and the control group is on the left side. And you can see the banker's side is more shifted to the left. So somehow, reminding people that they are bankers, they lied more. Now, this is a troubling experiment. It really is. I mean, you know, the mouse one, this one. Uh, I think that it, it speaks to the fact that there can be a very bad culture within the banks themselves. Again, I'm, I don't want to go back to saying, remember, these people are all bankers. So I don't think all bankers are bad. I really don't. But what I think this, this little picture shows is that when you begin to think of yourself within the bank, within your, your profession, somehow you, you look at the world differently. And I don't know if any of you have been following what's been going on in uh, Australia. Um, but there, you know, their, their major banks, they only have like four, they sailed through the crisis. Australia looked great, and yet it's just a nightmare down there. They, you know, they found out that all the big banks basically were cheating people in their wealth management accounts. They were billing people who were dead. They were, uh, I mean, they, they, uh, there's one bank down there that is facing 57,000 counts of money laundering. And, it's unbelievable what's going on in Australia. It's like, what happened down there? And it led to this. Um, there have uh, been big demonstrations down in Australia. I mean, people have had it with this. So I think the, the reconsidering the values of finance is certainly, it's, it's a time. We need to think about it. So let me just put the last slide up here, which is, whoops. Ah, where'd my last slide go? Well, let me tell you what's on my slide. I think he got hidden. My fault. Um, is he there? Can we get him unhidden? I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, how do we change the values in finance, right? I mean, how do we make people recognize that just because it's in a market doesn't mean that you behave differently than when you're seeing somebody one-on-one? -on -one? How do we change a culture that says, if you remind me, of a, I'm a banker, I lie more often. Well, I think, again, you know, we need to establish an ethical culture. Um, there's a quote I really enjoy, this one. Some of the millennials like this, and I swear some of them think this is how to behave. The secret of life is honesty and fair play. If you can fake that, you've got it made. Um, we need to get away from that. Now, if you wonder who said these deep words, this is Groucho Marx, right? So. <laughs> You really don't want to be pattering your life after Groucho. Um, but I, I do think there is this fake it till you make it idea that we, we need to get rid of. And it, it's not just the millennials who personally I, like, I really like. I think you know, the boomers could learn a lot from them. Um, but we need ethical cultures in financial institutions. That bank should be ashamed that that's what happens there. They got to look at that culture. And how do we change cultures in corporations? It's not easy. But we've begun to see things like ethical, you know, a number of boards have begun to add ethics committees. Citibank now has one, uh, where it's now a board level problem to create the right culture. Um, you know, when I talk with financial institutions, they say to me, well, you know, what are you doing to change the way the people we hire are? And I, I agree with that. I think the universities and the business schools have an obligation to do this. We need to rethink compensation schedules, too. One of the things behavioral economics also shows is that people view acts of commission as being far worse than acts of omission. So if I tell you really bad advice, well, that's, that's very bad.
But if I know something's crummy and I don't tell it to you, ah, oh, well, should have asked. You know, we don't believe that, right? It's what I've done and what I've failed to do. We need to get that into how we operate in finance. And again, we have to come back and establish finance as a force for good. I know that far, far too few people think that we are. And maybe those of us who think we, it is true are delusional. But these are the values that we have to change. That finance is not just you know, lying to people and, and making money, because it isn't. But we have to work at that. So let me quit there. And thank you. Thank you very much, Eminence, Excellencies. Uh, it's a great honor for me for, to be here and to be invited here uh, of the Institute of Lumen Christi. And I'm glad to be here once more um, in behalf of, the, of our Institute and um, also in behalf of explaining something about uh, the, our theme, the values of finance, with the background of our document, Economice et Pecuniarie Questionis. We have uh, already uh, spoken a little bit yesterday uh, afternoon and uh, evening. And in my point, I want to make three uh, points. As we have learned it from the Jesuits at the Gregorian University in Rome, I have no uh, PowerPoint, I excuse myself, I have no PowerPoint, we haven't learned it uh, during the 80s at the Gregorian in Rome, uh, so I can only make three or four or five points, uh, and I will uh, make three points uh, or four points. Uh, first, uh, a short view to values and goods, and uh, second, um, a short point of biblical anthropology. Uh, what does it mean uh, that we are speaking about anthropology? Uh, third point, values of finance. What does it mean on, in the, with a Christian background? And uh, fourth, um, some remarks for application. I ask for forgiveness for my uh, German-English. Uh, my Italian is better, but uh, so uh, please take it uh, for the moment. Um, the first, uh, the theme of our uh, of our part this morning, of our panel this morning, is values of finance. Um, traditionally, we make difference between values and goods. Uh, normally, or in in the mainstream now, uh, at least in Germany, uh, th they use these words value and good uh, identically. But uh, in the tradition, there we have. Uh, two different uh, meanings. Goods are the objective goods of persons. Values are the subjective goods. So value means that a person, an individual person, says this good is good for me. Good in itself, goods in itself, life, family, um, not to be lied, uh, to, to seek for the truth, uh, property, all these, what we call the essence and the nucleus of the natural law, these are objective goods. 
And it's very fine if objective and subjective goods, so objective val goods and subjective values are identical, uh, but must not be. So the idea behind this um, concept of good, goods and good is uh, the, the will and the meaning and the motivation and the intention of individual persons are bounded to objective presuppositions. Pre, 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 yeah, uh, uh, for pre, pre, pre suppositions, you say? Presuppositions. Presuppositions, yes. The first of this is life. We could make an excuse uh, or a link now uh, and think about, but that would be more a spiritual workshop than, uh, rather than a, a financial workshop, uh, and think about that in the most important decision of our life, we wouldn't be asked. We, 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 we wasn't be asked that we are alive. We come to world and we think after some weeks, some months, that's the very best idea that you are here. It's a nice idea for uh, meditating in the, in the land, uh, especially. Uh, perhaps you know the famous uh, German-Italian uh, theologian Romano Guardini. He has written a little booklet about its acceptance of, its, of uh, myself. That's the first task of everyone, not only to, to accept that I'm here, but to, 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 to love that I'm here. And we learn it from, from the love of, of uh, uh, Mama and Papa of the parents. So that's, um, I wanted only to remark that that is a f in, the, in, the, in this uh, perspective, Christian perspective, that's the first good of every man. Not only uh, to tolerate, to tolerate that I'm here, but to desire that I'm here. We came back to this uh, very, very special and important word, desire. That's the Greek word, eros. It's the best idea that I'm here. And the best idea for everyone that is here. That's the, the nucleus of the categorical imperative uh, of uh, Immanuel Kant. So the, uh, the goods uh, um, um, uh, uh, the goods have one source, one root, and the root is the good, the common good, and the common good is justice. Yesterday evening, with the speech of uh, Colonel Turkson, we have already touched this uh, very, very, very uh, uh, important keyword of the of the Western um, Western ethics, uh, justice, and the first uh, the first source, the first uh, uh, moment appearing. This word justice is in Plato, the Myth of Gorgias. Uh, and in the pre-last chapter of the Gorgias in Plato, uh, Plato uh, Socrates uh, um, wants to explain to Callicles, his dialogue partner, uh, wants to explain to Callicles uh, what is the essence of human being. And the essence of human being, in opposite to a turtle or in opposite to a plant, uh, to an oak, um, but normally uh, Socrates is speaking of a turtle, uh, the opposite of a human being. So in opposite to a turtle, human being has a soul, an immortal soul. And then he explain, uh, he, he's explaining what is this soul. And he is saying at the end of the life, uh, every, every person is dying and the body is gone away after 50, 60, 70 years. And 
the soul is going to the judge. The judge is called in this Gorgias of Socrates Radamantis, Radamantis. And this judge is seeing every person, uh, every soul, only the soul, without, without titles, without, uh, without uh, importance, um, believed importance, uh, and so on. Only the soul. And then, and Calliclus says, aha, 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 aha. And Socrates is explaining, yes, and now the, the, the judge, Radamantis, is seeing uh, that every soul is w wounded. Okay, and Calliclus is asking why the soul is wounded, every soul, and, Radama and Socrates uh, explains because every soul during the life was treated not in a just way. And there's the first time the ethical uh, uh, keyword uh, just, was not treated in a just way. And Calliclus is asking, programmatically, uh, he is asking, what does it mean not to be treated in a just way? That's, that's the, the, the key uh, question of the ethical uh, Western concept. And Socrates is responding, she's not treated in a just way when her beauty, her inner beauty, is mislected mislected. In other words, if her inner beauty is not desired by other persons. So the task of the person, for ending this is the first point, the task of the person is to protect this, the, this, this certain sentiment of every person that this person is desired by other persons. And that calls it, and that, that we call love, love in a biblical perspective, and love also eros in a Greek perspective. Avoiding now the discussions about the different uh, um, uh, aspects of uh, eros and love and agape and uh, so on, only for for sketching here uh, the important point. So the first and most important part of every human being is to protect. The, the, the certainty uh, that I and every other human person is desired. And that means the concept of person, to having a soul and to be protected. Both is important. So justice and dignity. This, this uh, beauty, inner beauty of a soul, it's a very famous Platonic uh, concept, inner, inner, inner beauty of a soul, that is translated then in uh, the Stoic uh, Latin uh, language with uh, dignitas, and then dignity, and in German we have this famous, or this uh, curious, uh, uh, funny word, Würde. It's an old, uh, old uh, German word, uh, um, uh, and we have not the, the dignity as all the other languages in, in the Western tradition. But Würde is the same, and then you, we have all, also uh, the, the uh, um, very famous and uh, um, beautiful word, Liebenswürdigkeit. So means um, um, dignus, love worthiness, love worthiness, yeah, love worthiness.
Also, that would be a nice link for Lent uh, to uh, think about what is loveworthiness, yeah, Liebenswürdigkeit. It's I I uh, I mention this word uh, only because it's very 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 important for the uh, uh, concept of Kant, Immanuel Kant. So he says, dignity of a person is loveworthiness, is a feeling loveworthiness. <laughs> yeah. So that's the first point. That's the good. This good must be uh, must be done in all our actions, in all our actions. And now, uh, um, very short, the second point: biblical anthropology um, is the same with other worlds. So the the uh, the human being, the person, is loved by God. For that, we have this image of paradise. It's an old Persian word, paradise, paradise, two words in the old Persian concept, uh, means an oasis, uh, a garden uh, in the desert uh, with water. Uh, and you have it in the first chapter then in uh, St. John's Gospel, uh, the woman at the, at the, at the, uh, at the well, yeah. Uh, she is seeking for water and Jesus is saying, but I, I, I can give you a water of life. And there we have the same, the same uh, idea. So the water of life for, for a human being is to, to have the feeling that another person uh, wants me and has a desire to live with me. And that's f uh, at very first God. So that's a biblical anthropology. And the, se the uh, second uh, pillar of this biblical anthropology is uh, the person, every human person is guardian for the soul of the other person. Uh, John Paul II once uh, in his encyclical letter Centesimus Annus said when is beginning the, uh, the Christian ethics is beginning with the question to Cain where is your brother Abel and Cain is responding am I the guardian of my brother and on this question there's no response because the whole Old Testament is one only answer to this question it's clear that you are the guardian. Who else? That means the human person is not an individualistic concept, but a rela relational uh, uh, person. Am I the guardian of my brother? Yes. And it's not only your brother by blood, but your brother, as the Colonel said this morning in the uh, homily during the Mass, with a very, very impressive gospel of uh, the the uh, wastrel of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the, the, my brother is not only my brother in la blood, but uh, every uh, human being, every person. That's a thesis. That's an, uh, if you want, that's an ideology. <laughs> but we think it's a very good ideology. Otherwise, would be, as Thomas Hobbes said, uh, homo homini lupus est. That's also possible. And the guardian of the person is now divided in forum internum, forum externum, says St. Augustine. Forum internum, you are the guardian of every other person, but St. Augustine is explaining after the murder of Abel, after, the, after Cain and Abel, we need not only a forum internum, an inner, an inner marketplace of virtue, but we need now also an external market, 
market forum, an external level of assecuration against aggression. And this assecuration against aggression is the state, status justitia, in De Civitate Dei, uh, chapter 11, uh, or book 11, he is explaining that precisely now with Cain and Abel and with the murdering of Abel is, is, um, is born the necessity of the state, status justitia, state of, of uh, justice. And the first justice is to be alive. And the second justice is to be loved. And the second justice is not be secured, secured by the state, only by family friendship. For that we are saying family is the nucleus of the state. And not the state is the first, but family is the first. And the state has nothing other to do than to protect um, occasions, possibilities to love each another. So that's the second point. I'm coming uh, um, further on. Uh, to the end, uh, but it's it's um, it's a big a, a big picture. Uh, the third point: values of finance. That was very late in this history of uh, Christianity and Christian spirituality and uh, ethics that we invented. Running out of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, thank you. That we invented the uh, value of finance. Only with the Franciscan ethics and then with the school of Salamanca. We have the, the preachers of the Franciscan uh, spirituality uh, and they invented the capitalism, a thing to the, to the invention of capitalism by the, by the homilies of St. Bernardine of Siena in uh, Siena, in Tuscany. We have today still, more or less, still Monte de Paschi di Siena, the, uh, one of the first banks. Uh, and we have the values of finance, the, the financial <laughs> instruments for uh, competition, for enrichment, for profits. That's not bad. But 1400 years after incarnation, they invented it's better to make profits than to go in the convent. In the gospel, you are reading. If you if you want to be perfect, go uh, uh, give give all away and. Uh, um, and be poor. And now they are inventing, if, if this, this would be the only way, that's, that's, that would be uh, the, right, the right perspective. Now we are inventing, and then with the school of Salamanca, self-interest is not bad, profit is not bad, in a framework of, of helping the, the, the more weak uh, persons. And the last, uh, and I'm coming to the end, is the application. Our, our document of the, of the Congregation of Faith and the Dicastry for uh, Integral Development of Human Being uh, is more a general uh, document, an anthropological uh, document. The application, I would say, could be at least in two, uh, in two directions. First, to to construct spiritual guidance for managers, for uh, persons. Uh, uh, Maureen O'Hara has uh, said, uh, the, the, in, in the financial system, there are persons, but they are bounded to the, to the, to the, to the, to the uh, regular, to the, to, the, to the laws of the financial system. But what we are doing for the persons living there, working there, what we are doing, one uh, point in the document is ethical committees, for instance. 
that's a mixture form between spiritual guidance and uh, institutional uh, laws. But I think it's very, very important to think about spiritual guidance for uh, entrepreneurs, for, for uh, persons. And the second, uh, then, to uh, think about uh, one point uh, Christopher Giancarlo uh, yesterday evening um, mentioned, um, we need competition in a social market economy or in a, in a, a capitalistic uh, system uh, with responsibility. We need competition and liability liability. It was very, very, very famous concept in the beginning of the social market economy in Germany, Werner Eucken uh, and also uh, Müller-Armack, they thought a lot about uh, liability, whom we are responsible. Thank you very much for your, your patience. Good morning. Um, I'd like to thank the organizers for this opportunity um, to, to discuss <coughs> the values of finance in light of this, uh, of this document. It was a challenging read. Um, I want to start with a, with a quote, um, which is very rich and, and talks about <coughs> I, what I think are the three primary purposes of finance. Financial activity, the document says, exhibits its primary vocation of service to the real economy. It is called to create value with morally licit means and to favor a dispersion of capital for the purpose of producing a principled circulation of wealth. So what then is this three-fold purpose of finance? Well, it starts with a recognition of service. Finance is done by, with, and for people in service of, of the real economy. And so from a financial perspective, it's to create value. Create value for people, first financially, but also socially and morally. So finance as serving, creating value. We are in markets. This is done in a generally uncoordinated fashion, where the coordination comes from the price mechanism. Second, the quote says, um, disperse capital for the, okay. I think of that as finance connects. It connects across time. I'm saving now for sending my kids to, to college. Across place, connecting people from all over the globe to each other. Connecting different people with different um, purposes, like savers versus lenders, for example. Finance connects and creates value by creating win-wins, where both sides of any transaction, any contract, would benefit. Generally, they can benefit because there's a risk-sharing involved. Okay. Or co-insurance. One simple example would be an entrepreneur selling shares in the firm, and that way allowing many people to share the risks of the firm rather than all the risk being on the entrepreneur. The connection means very social. So finance first needs to serve, second, it, it's very social, it's very cooperative. And then the third part of the quote 
is a principled circulation of wealth. I think that is the function of finance to distribute, to efficiently allocate finance, every business needs finance, to efficiently allocate finance, capital, where it's most productive. That is competitive. Right? That's about efficiency, that's a competitive mechanism. So finance is very challenging because it combines three, I think, very different things. It combines service to others. It combines recognition of we need to connect, create win-wins, be cooperative, be social, with, thirdly, efficiency, competition. One of the dangers of finance is to inverse this order. Right? To start with thinking about competition and efficiency, and then recognize, yes, generally we also would like to you know, connect people and create win-wins, and then uh, by the invisible hands of the market we will, um, we will create value, which very much can happen. Um, at the same time, the challenge is to make to understand that the ultimate purpose is to create value. You do that through connecting, and then finally, you also care about efficiency and competition. So we care about all three, I would say. Um, the challenge is to make sure that we don't totally invert that and only start thinking about competition. One way I think that I, I, I try to um, convey this, this, this threefold purpose of finance to, to my students, and to perhaps change their thinking a bit, is to talk about the threefold, what I called shared, or if you like, common goods of finance. So think about any financial transaction. Then the first requirement is that both sides of this transaction benefit. Right? So any financial transaction would be subject to uh, transactional justice, justice in exchange, or commutative justice. And that's basically, well, if you do the commutative thing, if you switch sides, it would still be fair. Right? And so if you are uh, doing a transaction and if you would put yourself in the shoes of the other side, would you still think this is a fair transaction? If not, well, you violate cumulative justice, particularly if you are the party on the, in the transaction with superior information. Um, would you still think it's fair if you are on the other side? But these shared goods of finance go beyond the transaction. Basically, what, what I would argue is that Every financial transaction, if it's morally licit, also has to provide shared goods to all the other participants in the market. The first one is sharing of information. That others can observe the transaction in the market, they learn from this. If it's a transaction that is an ethical transaction, so are people not trying to hide or, or fool the market in some sense, or create additional volatility in the market, if the transaction is, is, a, is a good transaction in some sense, that makes the market more efficient. It provides information to the market. It's by observing what others are doing, right, that you have a sense, oh, that is where value is being created. Second, every transaction can facilitate more shared risks. Right? The opposite of that is, the opposite of the win-win, is financial transactions where it's Hats, I win, tails, you lose. Okay. So unless there's a real sense of co-insurance of sharing risks, right, this shared good is not created. 
the third thing relates to, again, to, to the third aspect, the third purpose of finance, of efficient uh, competitive allocation, is finance is a way to share discipline. That it's like being in a team. If your um, team that you're playing with, if they're really, really good, they will make you better. Right? It's going to be harder to play them, but it's actually in the long term good for you to play against really good teams. So by the transaction being bargained hard in some sense, that forces everybody in the market to also bring their best and be well prepared to compete. And that means no crony capitalism, no side deals, no taking advantage of, one's, one's, um, uh, of, of things that are not about efficient allocation of capital where it's most productive. This is difficult in finance because many times in finance, the person working in finance is at the intersection of serving the economy, of connecting people, and being at the intersection also of efficient allocation of capital. So oftentimes, these, in finance, we have situations of unequal information, where one party, often in finance, has much superior information, that many differences in power across some different market participants. We have incomplete marketing, mar uh, sorry, incomplete markets or incomplete contracting, using economic terms. And there's often unequal control across the different market participants. So there may be somewhat limited competition in particular areas of finance. Those, those inequalities, which I think are natural, markets help resolve right, through those shared goods. But there always will be, to some extent, some market imperfections or market inefficiencies, which is why people in finance uh, need to be virtuous. So the challenge then becomes, can a person in finance recognize that they have a responsibility to the person they're transacting with, but they also have a responsibility to everyone else participating in the market that they need to contribute to those shared common goods of finance. Then there's a third element, and that is finance needs to serve the real economy beyond the financial market. Okay? So if we go back to the threefold purpose of finance, we need to serve, we need to cooperate socially by connecting, and we need to compete. So go, going back to the first, is beyond even the shared goods of finance, is this notion that finance needs to serve the real economy. To understand the challenge of finance there, I want to make a distinction between cooperation versus competition, which I think are two different economic mechanisms through which uh, we want to create value. So for competition, think markets. For cooperation, think business more generally, or think the real economy, if you like. Competition or markets are characterized by adversarial bargaining. Where adversarial doesn't mean you don't like the other person. It just means, well, you're competing. If I sell shares to you, then the more you pay me, the better it is for me, the worse for you. That's all I mean by adversarial. Okay. Cooperation has to start with, with the recognition of a shared goal. It's really a team approach. So not adversarial bargaining at the start. 
Markets generally are characterized by independent transactions, while cooperation is about interdependence. Thinking about it, you're competing in a market. If others in the market are less effective because they're independent transactions, that makes you more effective. For co cooperation, it's the opposite. In true cooperation, there's a real interdependence, so other person's effectiveness makes you more effective. And finally, Competition on marks are generally characterized by substitutability. That means in the market, if I'm not selling you something you want or it's not good enough, you go to the next person. In a perfect or close to perfect market, right, there's many different substitutes for whatever one is buying or selling. In cooperation, again, this is different. It's not about substitutability, it's about complementarities, reciprocity. Willingness to see what the priorities of the other person are, and then having a willingness, because you're recognized, you have a shared purpose, this, this shared goal, to make their priorities your own. So the challenge in finance then is um, to be able to do all three things, is to serve, to cooperate, and to compete. So when I think of the, 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 the students that we try to educate at, at Notre Dame, and, and finance is, is a very big part of, of, our, of, our, uh, of our educational programs. Just to give you a sense, in our undergraduate business program, about half the students major in finance. And many of them will, will, will go to Wall Street or private equity firms. What, we, what do we want those students to think about the purpose of finance? So we want, ideally, to have those students come away from Notre Dame thinking, well, no, finance needs to serve. In finance, we really need to cooperate, but we also need to compete. And ideally, in my mind, at least, in that order. Recognizing that's difficult because these are all very different things. They are related. Every business is doing all these three things. Every business is serving, every business is cooperating, and every business is competing. And how to get those three aspects in the right balance, in the right order, recognizing that you're always doing all three. Except, of course, when we have a perfect market. Then it's purely competitive. Then you don't have to worry, in some sense, about cooperation. If there's no asymmetric information, if markets are complete, if there's unlimited or perfect competition, right, then if you're competing in markets, you don't have to worry about cooperation. But if you're not in, in a perfect market, then you have to worry about these inequalities in information power and control. And it is possible that your market transactions may actually hinder the real economy. You may make it harder for the other stakeholders of the firm to cooperate because you're competing so hard. Okay. So to conclude, financial transactions, good finance, if you like, will provide benefits to two groups of people. First, starting at the end, if you like, all participants in the transaction need to benefit. Right? Cumulative justice. So, don't abuse superior information power and control. How do you know? Well, put yourself simply in the shoes of the person on the other side of any transaction, on the other side of any financial contract. To some extent, I think that's the easy part. Two and three, I think, are more difficult. 
Second, all market participants need to benefit as well. So everybody else particip participating in the market and ultimately having a market where everyone can easily participate in. How? Well, because the transaction will contribute to what I call the shared goods of finance. That other market participants learn something important about where value is created by the sharing of information. Um, there's real sharing of risk, coinsurance in the financial transaction, and there's a shared discipline. Right? The efficient allocation of capital makes everyone bring, um, uh, bring their best game to the market. So that means there is no harm to these, to, these, uh, to these shared goods of finance. So no bad speculation that creates a lot of temporary volatility. No underinvestment or risk transfers where I'm simply creating a lot of volatility to risk shift, right? assuming that I'm, I have the more levered position so I benefit from risk shifting. No too big to fail or crony capitalism. And then third, that the competitive mechanism doesn't overtake the, the cooperation that is needed in the real economy of all the different stakeholders, like employees, customers, suppliers, communities that they live in, to cooperate fruitfully. The danger there is that too much market pressure, too much focus on competition may undermine cooperation because these are economically also so, so, so very different. Right, the adversarial bargaining versus the team approach, the independent transactions versus interdependence, substitutability versus complementarity. Because of these great differences between competition and cooperation, there's a responsibility on the most powerful financial market participants to recognize that they need to uh, also uh, be cooperative and make sure that all the other uh, stakeholders can fruitfully cooperate in the long term um, to, to serve society. Thank you.